You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 132, Britain adjusts its war plans. General William Howe had hoped to end his 1776 campaign with the subjugation of New Jersey in December. With that, he expected the remainder of the Continental Army to dissolve, and then he could focus on granting pardons to everyone who swore loyalty to the king. Of course, General Washington and the Continentals had other ideas, fighting the battles of Trenton and Princeton, and keeping up the forage war across New Jersey for most of the winter. This kept the Continental Army and the counteroffensive alive for at least another year. General Howe left the skirmishing in New Jersey to his subordinates. Howe personally spent the winter in New York, enjoying one party after another, as well as his mistress, Betsy Loring. His professional focus remained on the inevitable campaign that would begin again in the spring of 1777. Even before the Continentals had counterattacked at Trenton in late December, indeed even before Howe had completed pushing the army out of White Plains, New York, Howe had begun writing Lord Germain and others in London calling for more reinforcements. Now you got to remember, Howe had begun the New York campaign with a combined army and navy force of about 42,000 men, and that's not even counting the 8,000 or so that were stationed in and around Quebec. Now, of the New York force, about 10,000 were sailors and marines, with only about 32,000 of the British and German forces in New York being army. Over the course of the campaign, he had lost nearly 9,000 soldiers as prisoners or through desertions or deaths, most of those deaths coming from disease. With these losses, General Howe was convinced that he would need more reinforcements for the 1777 campaign. Remember, when preparing for the 1776 campaign, officials had decided to deploy an overwhelming force in order to crush this rebellion. In 1775, the entire British army worldwide consisted of only about 50,000 soldiers. So, sending 40,000 to New York and Quebec had been quite a burden. They did so in the hope that they could end this war quickly, rather than having an expensive, drawn-out effort lasting many years. Howe's letters to Lord Germain in the fall of 1776 informed him that there was no way the campaign would end that year, and that they needed to send many more reinforcements in order to crush Patriot morale and force a surrender. This had to frustrate Germain. Howe also said he found that he could raise almost no Tory regiments among the locals, meaning that they would need more recruits from Britain or else more mercenaries from Europe. 
By late November, about the time General Cornwallis was chasing the rapidly disintegrating Continental Army across New Jersey, Howe provided more specifics on his planned campaign for 1777. He would deploy one army of about 10,000 men from Providence, Rhode Island, marching through New England toward Boston. He would launch a second army of another 10,000 men up the Hudson River towards Albany, presumably linking up with forces from Quebec and cutting off New England from the colonies to the south. A third army of 8,000 would occupy New Jersey and create a threat against Philadelphia, thus preventing Washington from moving troops to deploy against the other two armies. Finally, he would maintain a force of around 5,000 in and around New York City to defend his base of operations there. Once Howe had subdued New York and New England early in the season, he would then capture Philadelphia and begin moving south to subdue the southern colonies. To accomplish all of this, Howe said he would need another 15,000 men. Again, his hope seemed to be that an overwhelming force would get the Patriots to surrender without even having to fight a major bloody battle. Now, as I said, Howe wrote about all these plans in November, even before Washington had launched his attacks against Trenton and Princeton, where he captured 1,400 prisoners and put almost all of New Jersey back into contention. Following the revitalization of the Patriots after those victories at Trenton and Princeton, Howe conceded that he would have to fight a decisive battle to defeat the rebels, something he had really tried not to do in 1776. Howe had hoped for more reinforcements to shock and awe the Patriots into surrender. It seems, though, that the only people shocked were officials back in London who saw no good justification for spending even more money to raise and deploy another 15,000 reinforcements. Germain told Howe that he was not getting anywhere near that number of soldiers. First, Germain thought 15,000 was excessive because 7,800 soldiers should give Howe the 35,000 in total that he required. A few years later, at a parliamentary inquiry over the events of 1777, General Howe testified that Lord Germain's numbers only made sense if Howe counted his soldiers who were disabled on sick leave and those who had been captured as available for duty. Even beyond that dispute, Germain further determined that the ministry simply was not willing to pay for an army of 35,000 to put in Howe's command. He ended up sending only about 2,300 reinforcements for Howe's 1777 campaign. General Howe needed to find a way to win this war with the already massive force under his command, a force that far outnumbered anything the Continentals had put in the field. Like every commander at this time, General Howe had subordinates who did not think he was up to the job that they could do a much better job, and they were not afraid to say that to anyone back in London who would listen. General John Burgoyne had left Canada in December 1776 after the Northern Army had taken Crown Point following the Battle of Valcour Island, and then retreated back to Canada without attacking Fort Ticonderoga. 
In that case, the commanding general, Guy Carleton's caution in not taking Ticonderoga that winter, had upset many officers, including Burgoyne. So Burgoyne's personal mission in London focused more on badmouthing General Carleton than on badmouthing General Howe. But he, of course, made clear that he had better ideas than all the commanders in North America. In February 1777, Burgoyne drafted a memorandum called Thoughts for Conducting the War from the Side of Canada, where he described in detail how he would lead an army of 8,000 regulars, 2,000 Canadian militia, and 1,000 Indians, or savages as he called them, down from Canada, capturing Fort Ticonderoga. And if you're interested in reading the original document, there is of course a link on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. General Burgoyne proposed to use a diversionary force that would leave for Montreal and move down Lake Ontario toward the Mohawk River. The main force would move from Quebec down Lake George to capture Crown Point and Ticonderoga. Ultimately, the force would continue on to Albany, where the Northern Army would either link up with Howe's forces moving up from New York City, or at least establish communications with New York City via the Hudson River. Now, this was not an original idea. It was very similar to what General Carleton had proposed and failed to do the year before. It was also what military planners had suggested from the very beginning as a strategy to cut off troublesome New England from the rest of the continent. General Burgoyne, with his detailed plan, successfully lobbied to lead this campaign himself. Lord Germain, Lord North, and King George all agreed that Burgoyne was the best man for the job. The king actually personally weighed in on this point with some very specific comments in a document entitled Remarks on the Conduct of War from Canada. And again, there's a link to the original document on my blog. In his remarks, the king generally endorsed Burgoyne's plan. The main concern was that London did not want to send more expensive reinforcements to Canada, and also that they wanted a sufficient force in Canada to protect Canada itself from another invasion. As a result, they shaved Burgoyne's request to send a force of 11,000 down to about 7,200 regulars and Hessians, with around 3,800 remaining in Canada as a defensive force. With Burgoyne's acceptance of the reduced numbers, he left London near the end of March so that he could get back to Quebec by early May. He needed to get moving if he wanted to have time to organize his troops, obtain the necessary supplies, and begin his campaign by sometime in June. Now, this left leaders with two uncomfortable problems. First, giving Burgoyne command of the Northern Army invading New York would be a slight against General Carleton, who was senior to Burgoyne and the current commander of the Northern Army in Canada. Some historians indicate that this was an issue of personal animosity between Germain and Carleton. If there was any ill will between the two men, and there probably was, there was also certainly good objective reasoning not to put General Carleton in charge again. Carleton's inability to secure Ticonderoga despite marching right up to its walls the year before, did not exactly enhance his reputation as an aggressive fighter to officials in London. 
the administration was clearly frustrated with the slow pace of events in America and laid the blame on Generals Howe and Carleton, giving an independent command to a young, aggressive, fighting general like Burgoyne might be just the thing to bring the rebellion to a faster conclusion. But no one wanted to disgrace or attack Carleton in the process. Instead, they used the argument that whoever led the expedition would have to link up with General Howe's army and would come under General Howe's command. They wanted Carleton to retain his independent command of Canada. After all, he was also the governor of Canada. So Carleton had to remain in Canada while Burgoyne led the bulk of the Northern Army into New York. Regardless, Carleton would take his action as a slight against his leadership abilities. Sure enough, when Carleton received word of Burgoyne's assignment, he immediately sent word that he wished to be recalled to London. But there would be no time for him to fight or challenge the orders once received. He had to go along with it. The ministry kept Carleton in Canada, and he would remain there, discontented, until the summer of 1778. The second ego bruised was that of General Henry Clinton, who had been seeking an independent command of his own and expressed continued frustration at serving under General Howe. Before Burgoyne arrived in London, Lord Germain and others had been considering a similar plan to Burgoyne's with the intention of giving command of the force to General Clinton. As second in seniority to Howe, and given the fact that he had been frustrated with Howe's refusal to take his strategic advice the year before, General Clinton would be the obvious leader. Howe had actually assumed Clinton would get the Northern Command and had requested that London send Burgoyne back to America to become Howe's second-in-command. But with the decision to give the command to Burgoyne, the administration had to find a way to appease Clinton. To make things even more uncomfortable, Clinton was already on his way to London. As I mentioned back in episode 119, Clinton had secured Rhode Island for Howe after being left out of the entire New Jersey campaign. Frustrated, he boarded a ship for London in January 1777 and arrived in March, just after the administration had handed the New York expedition to Burgoyne. Even before hearing of this latest slight to his honor, Clinton had planned to resign his commission. He felt everyone held him responsible for the failure to take Charleston, South Carolina, back in the spring of 1776, and that he was getting dumped into unimportant posts where he could do little to restore his reputation. The ministry did not want Clinton to resign, but they also didn't seem to want to give him any important command either. So instead, they opted to stroke his ego. The king honored him with a Knight of the Bath for his services, promoted him to lieutenant general, and let him address Parliament. After giving him all that, Germain told him he had to go back to New York and babysit New York City while Burgoyne invaded New York and Howe took his army onto its spring campaign. So, with the Northern Army's invasion of New York approved and ready to go, planners could consider Howe's other suggestions, an invasion of New England and the capture of Philadelphia. Howe's grand program that he had proposed in the fall 
looked even more sketchy after Washington attacked Trenton and Princeton and took back most of New Jersey. London still was not willing to send reinforcements that Howe wanted. As a result, he dropped his plans for New England. The British outpost in Rhode Island would remain with a limited force to provide a check on New England, but the planned offensive there came to nothing. Instead, Howe focused on capturing Philadelphia. In his correspondence with Germain and others over the winter, Howe did not say explicitly how he planned to assault Philadelphia. Everyone assumed he would march his army across New Jersey, cross the Delaware River at some point, and assault the city. His plan to put the entire army on ships, sail them down to Maryland, and assault Philadelphia from the south seems to have come later. And this is where things really break down. Germain and others in London assumed that Howe would provide support for Burgoyne's invasion of New York. An attack across New Jersey would occupy the attention of Washington's Continental Army, thus relieving pressure on Burgoyne. Germain also seemed to think that at some point, Howe would march northward to link up with Burgoyne's army, either in Albany or somewhere in upstate New York. Germain thought Howe would take Philadelphia early in the season. Everyone in London believed that Pennsylvania harbored a great many loyalists who would rise up as they did in New Jersey once the king's troops entered the colony. Howe would take Philadelphia easily, set up a reserve force of mostly locals to hold the city, then move the bulk of his combat troops north to assist Burgoyne by late summer or early fall. Overall, the war planning over the winter of 1776-77 left none of the generals completely happy. As I said, General Carleton was mortified that Burgoyne got command of the army that was invading New York. He wanted to return to London. General Clinton, also more senior to Burgoyne, was similarly upset and tried to resign. His resignation refused. He returned to New York and commanded the tiny contingent holding New York City, while others got to engage with the enemy. Although he commanded a force of around 7,000, almost all of them were German mercenaries or local loyalist militia. He had almost no regulars under his command. I also mentioned in an earlier episode that General Lord Percy had returned home in early 1777 to resign as well. The king accepted his resignation, and he left the army permanently. General Lord Cornwallis was ticked off that he was getting the blame for Washington's successes in New Jersey that winter, and that he could not return to London to advocate for himself. General Howe was frustrated by London's refusal to give him the reinforcements he needed to carry out his plans for three armies. He could not strike at New England, nor did he have enough men to send a separate army up the Hudson River to coordinate with Burgoyne. He had to settle for capturing Philadelphia only that year. Even General Burgoyne, who got the plum command over two more senior generals and got his plan of attack approved, received less than two-thirds of the number of soldiers he had sought for the mission. Having all the leading generals upset and angry at each other was bad enough. What was worse was that no one seemed to have a certain understanding of the overall strategy for the year ahead. Burgoyne thought that Howe or Clinton would assist with his offensive by pushing up from New York City 
toward his advance, or at least attacking New England to draw away some of the enemy. Clinton, of course, did not receive any such orders. When later urged to push up the Hudson to relieve Burgoyne, he refused to do so because it would leave New York City vulnerable to attack. Similarly, Howe made his only goal for the year capturing Philadelphia. There was some discussion that he might assist Burgoyne in the fall after pacifying Philadelphia, but he never received explicit orders to do so. Many historians put the blame on Lord Germain for this. They point to a story just before Easter 1777, when Germain was eager to get out of London and return to his country home. His secretary reported that he had never sent explicit orders to Howe to assist Burgoyne. Not wanting to wait in London, Germain had his staff work on the orders and send them to his house for his signature later. But all Howe ever got was a copy of Burgoyne's orders that indicated that Howe might be of some assistance at some point. Howe never even started to move on Philadelphia until the end of July, and did not even enter Philadelphia until the end of September. Howe, therefore, never made any effort to send a force up the Hudson to relieve Burgoyne in late summer when it might have helped. But Howe did know what Burgoyne was doing, and even if Germain gave him some discretion on how to act, it seems that he should have been prepared to support Burgoyne. Later, during a parliamentary inquiry into the matter, Howe justified himself as follows. Quote, had I adopted the plan to go up the Hudson River, it would have been alleged that I had wasted the campaign with a considerable army under my command, merely to ensure the progress of the Northern Army, which should have taken care of itself, provided I had made a diversion in favor by drawing off to the southward the main army under General Washington. Would not my enemies have gone further and insinuated that, alarmed at the rapid success which the Honorable General Burgoyne had a right to expect when Ticonderoga fell, I had enviously grasped a share of the merit which would otherwise have been all his own? Let me add, would not ministers have told you, as they truly might, that I had acted without any orders or instructions from them. In other words, Howe would have been criticized for sitting around New York all summer waiting to assist the Northern Army rather than doing something proactive like capturing Philadelphia. Howe blamed Burgoyne for getting the reinforcements that Howe wanted for his own plans. Howe reasoned that if Burgoyne got the soldiers, he should be capable of defeating the Americans without more help from another army. Now, none of the other generals would ever admit to such a thing, but they were probably all waiting for Burgoyne to fail. Burgoyne had criticized everyone else for being too cautious and for lobbying for his own command over the backs of more senior generals. He was an upstart who was junior to all these other generals. Further, he had no family in Parliament to support him politically if he did fail. If Burgoyne's aggressive offensive failed, it would show why those cautious tactics he criticized were in fact the right strategy. As it was, everyone started the fighting season of 1777 with a different idea of how things would work. We will see in some future episodes the results of all that confusion. Next week, the British test American resolve on the Hudson by raiding the town of Peekskill, New York. 
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to thank my Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Tyson Franz, who runs the Liberty & Co. site where you can buy American Revolution t-shirts, mugs, magnets, and other great items related to the Revolution and the founding of the United States. Tyson has also been a great help designing the logos for the t-shirts for History Camp Philadelphia that's going to take place on May 2nd. In addition, Tyson donates a portion of his profits to the Museum of the American Revolution and recently made a donation of over $3,000 to help the museum continue its great efforts. Right now, Tyson is still offering free shipping and will also give you a 20% discount if you use the code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, at checkout. If you want to check out his stuff, go to libertyand.co or use the link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. This week's episode was all about the correspondence between military leaders in America and ministry officials over the winter of 1776-77. I know some folks find talking about correspondence and planning a bit boring, but as far as I'm concerned, the events covered this week is where Britain lost the war. The lack of cooperation between the general officers and the failure for all of them to support each other or even be certain what each other was doing was fatal to British control of North America. I hope it's not a spoiler alert to point out that the lack of coordination is going to result in the capture of a large British army at Saratoga later in 1777. And that American victory is what encouraged France to enter the war and change everything. The lack of a coherent war plan in 1777 made military domination of North America impossible for the British to achieve. We can argue about who is really at fault among the British leadership. All of this would become a topic of a parliamentary inquiry in 1778 and would be debated by historians to this very day. General Howe usually takes a lot of heat for his refusal to support Burgoyne by marching into the Hudson Valley. Ultimately, London would recall Howe in the months after the Saratoga debacle. Lord Germain, as Secretary of State for American Affairs, also deserves blame. His failure to provide clear and consistent orders to all the military generals in North America as to how they should cooperate, and perhaps his selection of Burgoyne over more senior and perhaps more capable officers who would have known how to maintain supply lines, or at least would have been more reluctant to advance, 
without having those supply lines secure might have been a better plan overall, at least in hindsight. Much of this mess is easily blamed on the overall problems of communications. Remember that officials in London had to wait more than a month to get any information about what was happening in America, sometimes much longer. It would also take more than a month to send a response. So, having a back-and-forth conversation could easily take so long that a fighting season could be over before there was any agreement. The ministry had to trust its commanding officers to make even very broad strategic decisions, and it appears that the ministry simply did not have that confidence. I've already recommended Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy's book, The Men Who Lost America, in an earlier episode. If you haven't read that one yet, it applies well to this week's topic as well. But my book recommendation for this week is a more obscure one. It's called Logistics and the Failure of the British Army in America, 1775 to 1783, by Arthur Bowler. There's a famous saying that I've heard with a few different variations, and I'm not sure who originated it, but it goes something like, Amateurs talk about tactics or strategy. Professionals study logistics. The point of the saying is that those with real experience know that logistics will define how strategy and tactics can work. The logistical nightmare of supporting an army that was many weeks away from home and had to conquer many thousands of miles was always going to be Britain's biggest hurdle, and it showed in the 1777 campaigns. Now, I've included this book in my Books Worth Buying section of my blog, as I always do with decent books that I consider relevant to the topic at hand. But this one may be a hard sell because of its price. On Amazon, the original hardback sells used for over $100, and the 2015 paperback reprint starts at about $35. Uh, It appears to be printed only as a print-on-demand book, which is probably why it's so expensive. So you would probably have to really want this book to shell out that kind of money. I suspect the book was used primarily in college classes where they can gouge students on book prices. The sad reality is that these books take a long time to research and do have a very limited market, so the author and publisher have to charge well above the prices of mass market books in order to make the publication viable. The book itself is just over 250 pages, not counting notes and index. It is well-written and very well-researched, as it looks into British logistics and the limitations on those logistics during the war. It's one of the best and most thorough analyses that I have found on this particular issue. So, if you want to read about this particular issue and are willing to pay the price, then you should go ahead and get Logistics and the Failure of the British Army in America. My online recommendation this week is also rather obscure, but at least it has the benefit of being out of copyright and freely available. It is called the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts Report on the Manuscripts of Mrs. Stopford Sackville of Drayton House, Northamptonshire, Volume 2. Now, that really dry and uninformative title of the book does not really explain its contents. The interesting part for me is that it includes Lord Germain's, a.k.a. Lord Sackville's, original correspondence related to the American conflict. 
It is a key primary source into British decision planning and organization during the Revolutionary War. If you want to get that, there is a copy of it that you can search for on archive.org. And as always, I've included a direct link on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.